2: You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing? Well, I've just had my blood pressure taken because I've had a headache for about 10 days. I know it's fascinating, I can't get rid of it. Tried lots of things. Tried drinking herbal tea anyway. and that, that didn't work. Anyway, middle of the night last night, I thought, oh my goodness, what if I've got really high blood pressure that I didn't know about and I'm actually about to have a stroke. So uh, my husband has a blood pressure machine and I've just taken it three times because that's what apparently you're supposed to do. I don't have high blood pressure, so we can cross that off the list. Who knows what's going on? The only thing I haven't had recently is chocolate. So maybe I need I think I should go back to chocolate, don't, don't you? Anyway, took my mum shopping this weekend. We went to a big John Lewis that she has missed going to for many a year. So we got in the car and drove there. And well, it's fair to say that service was a bit thin and it got to the fact that we had lunch there. It was a cafe, the one where you get a tray and you queue up and choose what you're going to eat and then pay and then go to your table. Well, the queue to pay. Everyone's food was going cold while they were waiting. And they didn't have enough cutlery. They had no forks. <laughs> so I had I had kale quiche. Don't ask me why. It was very nice, but I had kale quiche. It wasn't on my wish list. And a salad which I had to eat with a knife and a dinner spoon. And some of the salad was fine, little bits, but there were these massive bits of lettuce that I couldn't... I needed to just pick them up with my hands, but I was out with my mother. I couldn't do that. And trying to cut up this lettuce with, a like, a pudding spoon was, was problematic. And let's just hope nobody was videoing me. Nobody would video me, I know, but if they had been videoing me, it would be quite embarrassing because I didn't do a good job. It's quite hard to cut up. Big pieces of lettuce with a spoon. Trust me, it may not have been something you've tried, but trust me. Anyway, this is an episode I'm so excited about. Well, I'm excited about every episode, you know me, but this one really, because we've got two publishers, two independent publishers coming on. And I don't know about you, but I read a lot about what's going on in the book industry, and times are tough. And I don't think I do enough to support the smaller, well, the independent publishers. And so I thought, well, let's hear it. Let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Let's hear it from the publisher's mouth. And that's what we're going to do today. It's quite a long interview, but there's so much to talk about. So just, I'm going to get the book reviews done now, get that out of the way, and then we can get straight in to the publisher chat. Let me tell you what the books are that I'm going to review today and then talk a bit more about the publisher's So, the books are, first of all, we've got Better the Blood by Michael Bennett. I cannot wait to talk to you about that book. Then we've got No Secrets about David Jackson, and I can't wait to talk to you about that book. We've got Parenting Hell by Rob Beckett and Josh Widcombe. We've got Death of a Green-Eyed Monster by by M.C. Beaton, but it's also written by, it says, with R.W. Green. And finally, we've got Conviction by D.A. Mishana. So, Those are the books I'm going to get stuck in straight away. Is my microphone cord banging on the books? If I move that out of the way, apologies if it was. This book, this book, Better the Blood, is a book you need to fight your nearest and dearest to get hold of. You need to just push people out of the way to go and acquire. It's stunning. Let me read you the blurb for this one. It's quite a long blurb. No, I'm going to read it, so settle back. Are you sitting comfortably? The past never truly stays buried. Hannah Westerman is a tenacious Maori detective juggling single motherhood and the pressures of her career in Auckland's Central Investigation Branch. When she's led to a crime scene by a mysterious video, she discovers a man hanging in a secret room. As Hannah and her team work to track down the perpetrator, other deaths lead her to think that they are searching for New Zealand's first serial killer. With little to go on, Hannah must use all her experience as a police officer to find a motive for these apparently unrelated murders. What she eventually discovers is a link to a historic crime that leads back to the brutal and bloody colonisation of New Zealand. As a Maori officer, there has always been a clash between duty and culture for Hannah, but it is something that she's found a way to live with until now. When the pursuit becomes frighteningly personal, Hannah realises that her heritage and past are the keys to finding the killer. But as the murders continue, it seems that the killer's agenda of revenge may include Hannah and her family. Let's do first sentence. There's like an introduction... Let's do the introduction. Chapter one, a smudge on the page of history, 5th of October, 1863. His hands move quickly as he polishes the sheet of silver plated copper to a perfect mirror finish. He is well practised at this on a good day. say on a day where he has been engaged to create portraits of a number of members of a wealthy London merchant family, he could easily craft 30, perhaps more this book. Uh, I mean, that's a very long blurb. What I would say is that if you like crime and you like it with something that just has so much more, you're going to love this book. I cannot believe this is a debut. It, I learned more about New Zealand than I ever knew before, but the book doesn't do it in a telling you off, you should know this way. It just picks you up and runs with it. There are words that they use the language and there are these brilliant little explanations at the bottom of those pages. But it's not, don't think, oh my goodness, that sounds really technical. It's not. It's just an amazing book. Um, I mean, I was writing notes as I was reading it because I just, I love the words, the explanations. There's so much cultural stuff. That's a technical term. It's just incredible. It leaps from the page. It's, um, the story of New Zealand just sings out from this book and yet it's got so much more because, because of the the crime and the perpetrator and the detectives, it's gripping from start to finish. And yes, that the book opens looking back in time, but it's very much a, the story is of our time. I just thought it's exceptional. Why are people not shouting about this really loudly? Better the Blood, Michael Bennett. My goodness. This is one of my top books of the year. Really, really good. Really enjoyed that. I think you got the gist. Next one is No Secrets by David Jackson. Another great one. Let me read you the blurb on this one. You can't lie to Izzy Lambert. Her highly developed, empathic... empathic, Come on, Philippa. I've not eaten yet. There's been no tea consumed, no coffee, no food. And this is what we're dealing with. She can't pronounce words. Anyway, let's start again with that. Her highly developed empathic abilities allow her to read people's emotions with terrifying accuracy and consequences. As a child, her insights sparked her parents' divorce. As an adult, she avoids getting too close to people for fear of what she might learn. But now young girls are going missing in her town and when Izzy sees her old school caretaker interviewed on the news about the latest disappearance, she comes to a chilling realisation. He is the man behind the crimes and time is fast running out to bring the girls home alive. Trying to convince the police of this is a different matter, but with lives at stake, Izzy cannot walk away. She vows to prove Kenneth Plumley's guilt. But as a cat and mouse game begins, it becomes increasingly likely that it's the very last thing she will do. Chapter one. Front crawl. Not her best stroke by any means, but at least she could keep her head down, eyes averted from the suffocating reality above. Backstroke. The echoing command was so forceful it gave her palpitations to ignore it. She continued to scoop armful after armful of air, legs scissoring furiously as she tried to imagine herself racing to happier times. I thought this was a, again, another brilliant crime book. I love the main character of Izzy. I love the fact that she can tell if someone's lying or not. It's just brilliant. and yes, yeah, she can't do it in all circumstances, but there are uh, you know there are certain times when she can and it just adds something to it when she knows that someone is lying and it's the implications of that on her on others. and uh, the book kept surprising me as well. I was just compelled to read it excellent no secrets david jackson bravo you know i mean already we're into two brilliant books so yeah very good the next one is, is slightly different it's not a crime book parenting hell by rob beckett and josh Whitcomb. listen i love listening to their podcasts they make me laugh a lot and this is a book based on it but it does add more to it they've also done it as an audiobook which i've listened to and by the way, I got this book out of the library, and I would often go onto the online library app to look at books to reserve. And they wouldn't have a lot of new books, but when you go in, they've got this um, whole shelf of brand new books in. And you know, I go in, and my <laughs> eyes just light up, just like, oh, "Hello, books!" And of course, I pick them up. This was one of them because I wanted—I'd listened to it, but I wanted to see what the book was like. Okay, here, here we go. Let me do the blurb. What's it really like to be a parent and how come no one ever warned Rob or Josh of the sheer mind bending world altering sleep depriving sick covering tear inducing snob swiping bore inspiring 4am relationship straining brutality of it all. And Philippa breathe? And if they did, why can't they remember it or remember anything else for that matter? Why didn't anyone warn them about the slices of unmatched euphoric joy and pride that occasionally come piercing through, drenching you in unbridled happiness in much the same way a badly burped baby drenches you in milksick? Join Josh and Rob as they share the challenges and chaos of their parenting journeys, filled with all the things they never tell you at antenatal classes. Parenting hell is a beguiling mixture of humour rumination and conversation for prospective parents, new parents, old parents and never-to-be parents alike. Yeah, okay. I I really enjoyed this book and I really enjoyed the audio book. I enjoy, for me, I enjoy the podcast more because it's just sort of off-the-cuff chat and the laughter and they start laughing and they can't stop and all of that. But what this book is really good at is if you know someone who is thinking about having kids is pre- they're they're pregnant or they've got kids, this is a great book to give them. However, a lot of people that really need to read it won't have time to read the book. And so actually, I would really recommend the audiobook for that reason, because people who perhaps you've got a new baby, you haven't got time to sit and read a book like this. You haven't got time to, you know, brush your hair, clean your teeth, anything. You're just getting through minute by minute. I, I, I remember. So if there's a way of giving them the audiobook, I know it's a bit strange to wrap up an audio book at Christmas, but I think, first of all, they'll get to li- listen to that more easily. And secondly, Rob and Josh, it, it sounds like they recorded the whole thing together in the same room. And so there is a lot more off the cuff chat in between that just them reading what they've written. And that's fun. And then also you've got their wives, their parents talking as well. And that adds a lot to it, just to hear how their wives put up with them and all that they don't talk about in the podcast. So I think it's great. And I think it's a really honest, you know, being a parent is hard and it's, you know, you, not everyone should feel compelled to do it. So again, if you know someone or if you're someone that's thinking, oh, I don't know, about having kids. I think it's a really honest approach and hopefully you'll have some laughs along the way. So the book is good. The audiobook is better, I would say. But still, very funny. The next one is, there seems to be a few crime books this week, aren't there? I did really what I had had enough of psychological fiction and psychological thrillers and I just wanted to read some proper crime books. And, and that is actually, that's what we've had. So, I love the Hamish Macbeth books by M.C. Beaton, and very sadly, M.C. Beaton died not that long ago. But R.W. Green had been helping her write some of the books as she was poorly and has taken over. And I would say, you know, bravo. In many respects, he's taken over, really uh, gone back to basics of what we love about the characters. And I love Hamish Macbeth. It's so comforting. Listen, this isn't stuff that's going to test your brain cells and that's not what it's there for. It's just comforting. You know all the characters in Lock You know, there's the nosy sisters and the the vicar's wife. and It's just all different characters that you know and love and as I say, it's very comforting. So let me read you the blurb for this one. No one in Lock expects Dorothy to stay for long. She is, after all, entirely unsuitable. She's an uptown girl used to a fancy lifestyle in the big city of of Glasgow, shall never fit in. And how is that work-shy rogue Hamish Macbeth supposed to get anything done when his new assistant is such a distraction? The village needs a police sergeant who can get on with his job, not one who's constantly swooning over his pretty young constable. Yet PC Dorothy MacIver quickly shows how determined she is to win over the locals, and she certainly seems to bring out the best in Macbeth. Then comes a brutal murder, and the pair find themselves plunged into a tangled web of conspiracy that acquires a sinister strand when the chilling shadow of Glasgow's underworld creeps to the Highlands and the peaceful village of Loch Through it all, the bond between Hamish and Dorothy grows ever stronger, Has Hamish Macbeth finally found the love of his life? And can he track down the murderer before any hope he has for a blissful future is destroyed? Let's go to chapter one. Actually, there's a very interesting forward as well in this book. And I don't always read forwards, but I read this one and I was glad I did. And it talks about how R.W. Green... Sorry, my stomach's rumbling. This is terrible. And he talked about how... RW Greenwood sit with MC Beaton and how she edited his writing to begin with and uh, you know it's just useful to see anyway chapter one she was stunning her glossy black hair was drawn back into a high ponytail that dropped in a shining cascade beneath her hat the shade from the brim did nothing to dim either the sparkle of her blue eyes or the radiance of the perfect smile with which she greeted him now, I really do applaud R.W. Green for taking on these books. I think, as I said earlier, he's got he's got the essence of MC Beaton and the writing, and he knows these characters and clearly cares about them. I thought it was really good, and it's I'd say it's a much better Hamish Macbeth than the last five to ten have been, something like that. So I thought it was really good. The problem that I have is that. Uh, and the blurb gives gives away what I'm going to say, so I don't think I'm spoiling anything. But I am getting a bit fed up of detective police arriving, and if they're a male police and they they're joining Hamish Macbeth, that by the end of the book they're off working for somebody else. And if they're if it's a woman character, whether it's police or whatever, he just falls in love all the time. And I want it to be I want it to be something different. I'm just it's. The writing was brilliant and the characters were great. I just hope R.W. Green now has the confidence to step out. And yes, we still want all these characters, but I think now the biggest character development needs to be in Hamish Macbeth himself. But anyway, I still love it. I'm always going to get them and enjoy them. But that was just my feeling. And the last book is Conviction by D.A. Mishani. Now, let me read you the blurb on this one. Both investigations began on the same day. One seemed domestic, almost banal. A newborn is found in a bag outside a hospital and the woman who left it there is captured after a few hours. The second investigation appeared stranger and more intriguing. A Swiss tourist disappeared from a beach hotel near Tel Aviv and a quick inquiry shows he had been using a fake passport and at least two names. Can he be a Mossad agent like his daughter claims and is he in danger? Inspector Abraham... Wishing to outgrow his usual cases of domestic violence is indifferent to one and seduced by the other. But soon both investigations spiral into a maze of violence and deception, leading to Israel's darker secrets and threatening to put Abraham in conflict with the most powerful men in the country who technically don't even exist. Uh, Let's do the first sentence. Chapter one. Deputy Commissioner Benny Sabin, the precinct commander, made no attempt to hide his astonishment. He yanked open his desk drawer and pulled out a blue velvet case from which he removed a pen-shaped device made of dark glass. I don't believe this, Avy. You cannot be serious, he said. Um, I enjoyed this book. I found it quite hard to get into. It... It just, it sort of drops straight into the story, which is good, but I haven't read many books based in that location, so I personally, and it's my fault completely, but I was floundering to begin with, and it did take some persevering for me to sort of find my feet, if, if that makes sense. It's written beautifully. It's great crime stories. I love the two cases and how they merged. I thought it was very... I thought it was I thought it was good. It just is my fault. I just couldn't immerse myself as much into it. And that just shows I need to be reading more widely. So shame on me. It's a good story. And that was conviction. So I've done those books. Now, let's get on to this discussion. And I'm really excited to talk to these independent publishers. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot going on in the publishing world, and independent publishers, of course, are at the sharp end of this because they don't have necessarily the thousands of employees that some of the larger publishers have. So I thought, well, let's talk to them. And so today we're going to be talking to two that I've selected for you. One is Karen Sullivan from Arenda Books. And Arenda Books has been going quite a long time now. I should know the date, but we'll talk to Karen about it. Um, and she is perhaps one of the most established, in my mind, independent publishers. She comes out with fantastic books again and again. And she has, I think, such passion for authors and books and supportive of book reviews as well. She supported me. And so I just thought, well, let's talk to Karen uh, and find out her views on everything. But also, I wanted to talk to the guys from Hobet Books. We've got Adrian and Rebecca. Now, Hobet Books is, is a newbie, relatively. They started a few years ago, but already they're punching their way. You know, they really are. And they do a great podcast each week. And yes, they're interviewing authors, but also they're talking about how they're getting on in the publishing world. And they're very honest in that. And I really commend them for, for doing that. I think, you know, they have a range of great authors great books and because they're uh, newer than render they ha- you know they're, f- they're hitting this wall of all the challenges now you know what a time to go through the pandemic and then be dealing with all of this and the prices and just the pressures
0: a lot can happen in the next 3 years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance
2: i've gone on enough but i'm just really excited to talk to these professionals now so i am really thrilled to welcome karen sullivan from arenda books and adrian hobart and rebecca collins from hobet books welcome to the podcast
4: thank you so much thank you, so much. you. Uh, thank you <laughs>
2: I've been looking forward to talking to you all and I'm going to start. It's a really boring question, but I think we need to just put a put a mark in the sand about how and why you decided to start your publishing companies. So, Karen, I'll go to you first.
4: Uh, it's a very good question, actually. I, I, for, I started my career in publishing and for a period of time, I worked and worked my way up the, the ladder, if you like. And then I left and spent a long time writing books, um, nonfiction, basically things, um, raising children, emotional health, discipline, that kind of thing. And then as my own kids got older, I took a one day a week, supposedly job in an independent publisher, writing jacket copy and press releases. And it soon became clear that everything was not well. <laughs> I knew enough from my early days in publishing to know that you shouldn't, for example, have seven ISBNs for the same book. <laughs> so I I worked there for a while and then they had some new shareholders who were prepared to invest, but didn't like the list and wanted to cancel contracts. And I felt so uncomfortable about that and had engaged on a, on a really nice level with a lot of the authors loved what they did. So I thought I can't sit around and watch this. I'm going to leave. And I, laid on my bed for about 24 hours and thought, well, I don't know exactly what to do, but I know what not to do. And I decided to start arenda Books. Um, and the whole, I mean, I've, I've been a lifelong passionate reader um, and have worked on both sides of the fence. So I wanted to bring all of that to a publishing company, publishing books that I actually personally would like to read with lots of cultural diversity and real, um, a really sort of important author care element to it um, because having been an author myself and a lonely author on many occasions I wanted a team spirit and I wanted books that were truly unforgettable and that's where it started
5: oh wow wonderful Adrian
4: Rebecca what about you
2: well, you brought the
6: publishing,
5: yeah. So, so we, we have different, completely different skills, I guess, and backgrounds. So, I, well, I came from a published background similar to Karen, um, although my publishing background is academic publishing because I started off working for uh, Black Hole Science as it was, it doesn't exist anymore. Then, Oxford University Press for a few years, um, and then I uh, became a freelance, still working for Oxford University Press and Bloomsbury, um, but then. We came up with this bright idea not too long ago, well, didn't I, we?
6: I, I think you can't divorce the creation of Hobek from the fact that we got together.
5: Yes, yeah. So um, so we live and breathe Hobek. <laughs>
6: <laughs> but, you know, just a, around five years ago, we got together. We, we we knew each other at university and had a couple of snogs and all that sort of thing. But then <laughs> we set off, had families with different people, and uh, 25 years later, we're running across a car park into each other's arms, having discovered, you know, that... We were in love with each other, and I um, hope was pretty. well created pretty soon after that.
5: Really. Yeah, we sort of came up with the idea. I can remember where I was as well. I was I was sitting on the sofa in the front room of the house I lived in at the time when the idea came first came up for running a publishing company, and I thought, yeah, we could do that, couldn't we? <laughs>
6: yeah, well, well, we thought we could. Um, <laughs> and 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 similar to you, Karen. Really, I mean, you know, okay, I can't bring um, the publishing now but I have 25 years in the BBC. So uh, it's a similar creative process. And running authors is very similar to uh, being the manager of of journalists and broadcasters. Uh, There are certain similarities anyway. So it's a a slower burn. I mean, the fact is that I worked in an environment where it was very rush, rush, you know, 24-hour news environment uh making deadlines and, and getting stories out as quickly as possible and now we're talking about getting stories out um as, five months yeah <laughs> six to 12 months rather than um than, than quite as quickly as that so that's what we bring together and I think in terms of your values Karen it's similar to ours oh. in the sense that we choose the books uh that we're passionate about and, and the authors that we're passionate about we try very very hard to maintain that ...level of author care that you talk about, which is very important to us, a family ethos, if you like. Um, but the cold reality is, is that's very hard to sustain um, if you know, sales are sluggish or uh, business is tough. And th- you know, those are the things that you've got to try and protect under the pressure of of running a business. So that's that's where we are at the moment.
5: Yeah, so one thing I just want to say, when we get a submission, so we read it separately. We both read all the submissions, read it separately, and we don't say anything until usually one of us runs up to the other one and says, have you read it yet? I'm not going to give anything away about what I think, but have you read it yet?
4: Which is a dead giveaway.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. And what fantastic stories. Has the journey been what you expected it would be. Karen, you, you go first.
4: I think, well, we we have been lucky at the out. we were lucky at the outset in that we had a couple of um, Nordic Noir titles that really took off, in particular Regner Janssen. Um And he, that was, I think, the third or fourth book that we published. And it went to number one on the Kindle charts and knocked Girl on the train off for the first time in nine months. And so that kind of gave us a little bit of a false impression of what the publishing industry might be like. <laughs> but we, yeah, it's 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 hard, it's really hard. And I think it's becoming progressively harder for independents. When we started, we had, I felt, a fair share of the review coverage and um, invitations to festivals, and and also very big support from retailers, which is so important. So it gave us the flexibility and the freedom to publish what we felt we could publish, um, you know, without an eye necessarily on being commercial. So we, we don't follow trends. We wanted to, to publish books that we felt brought something new, different, vibrant, exciting to the market. And there was a point where that was very welcome and I now feel that everyone has become much more risk averse um, and that's starting with the big publishers who are now dominating in a way that they never did before on both the retail front and review coverage um, and we are like fighting harder and harder to keep our corner of the market um, and to continue to do what we do. What um, Adrian was saying earlier about, you know, (laughs) trying to protect your values in a different marketplace. Well, this is harder than ever. Like, how do you stick with authors who aren't selling? At the outset, we felt that we could do that. And we're committed to sticking with authors because everyone knows that some of the biggest names in our part of the market, crime fiction in particular, got their big break on book seven, eight, nine. So, you know, you, you have to grit your teeth. You need nerves of steel to stick with them. But when things are so tough, that how do you wait that long when you're losing money with every book you publish? So, so the market has changed. I don't think our determination or our passion has changed, but it's hard. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah everything well you put. said resonates with us. <laughs> I can see a lot of nodding there.
1: Absolutely.
6: No, I think that's right. I think that it is hard to to to, to uh, re- retain that enthusiasm when you, when you see how much money goes out just to get a book anywhere at all and I think I think the thing that's changed more than anything uh, I don't know if you feel this Karen but is that during lockdown when the retailers were shut the big publishers suddenly realized they had to find readers a different way and so they've gone into the digital marketing in the way that they didn't before. They were sort of holding their their noses a little bit while they were doing it. Now they're aggressively in that marketplace. So one of the areas where indies were able to get traction and, and make an impact has gone because they can outbid us and push us out of the way. I mean, I don't think necessarily all of the big publishers are doing this, but it's very noticeable. When I go on to something like BookBub, there are lots of very big recognisable names now getting BookBub deals for 99 cents or free or whatever it is. They were never there Two years ago, the big publishers are, 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 are nabbing a lot of the slots.
4: I think I think you're right, and I think you know a lot of our marketing did take place on social media, various social media platforms. And I, I mean, I think we were very well placed when lockdown hit because we had we've always had a really engaged bunch of followers, you know, team Arenda. (laughs) And so when everything sort of went wrong, people did continue to buy our books and continue to talk to us. And I think the big publishers realized that they were missing a trick. And, you know, if you weren't engaging people with people, you couldn't do it in person. So you had to do it in other ways. So we felt quite confident at the outset that we were going to be okay, because we did have, you know, we had a subscription box already. We had lots of things that they suddenly, but when big publishers come in and start pouring so much money in and elbowing you out of the way you have to to spend more money and you have to fight a lot harder just to stand still and I think that's what I like the overwhelming feeling right now for all of us at arenda Books right now is that we are working twice as hard we are spending three times more money and we're not getting any further forward and it's really hard it's it's dispiriting we just have to sort of grit our teeth and think we can do this you know we believe in what we're doing um we know from readers that they believe in what we're doing but reaching them in all the noise right now is harder than ever mm. very true. So true very true yeah. and of course
6: then there's the other pressure that that i mean particularly i think fit for you uh karen in terms of print costs, because you you are in bookshops to a far greater degree than we are at the moment. Uh, And the fact is the cover prices... Just don't offer a margin. Uh, even a ten-pound paperback, you make no money on it, really.
4: Exactly, and we increased our our books, the the price of our books by a pound, but it doesn't it doesn't make any difference, really. A book that we're about to publish this month, um, by the same author that we published exactly the same time last year, the same extent, no nothing different at all, is actually almost double the price, um, to print. And it's not just the cost of paper, it's there's an energy surcharge on top of it. So printing books is hugely expensive. And as we know, this is a book, an industry that's all about risk, isn't it? I mean, there's probably no other industry where you put something out there without any real concept of how it's going to be received. So it's risk, risk, isn't it? Will people like it? We like it. Hopefully people will. So it is, it's, it's really hard to, to take risks in this kind of environment because they've suddenly become bigger risks and very, very expensive risks. Yeah.
6: yeah, I think that's very true. I think when we're looking at it from a purely p- business point of view, I mean, printing books is a massive drag on cash flow. Uh, you invest a lot of money, depending on the size of the print run, but even a small print runs, a, a, a big commitment for, for a publisher like us. And then you've got to hope that these things fly. But, you you know, it might be three to six months before you see a return on those books going into bookshops or sitting in the distributors or whatever it might be. It's, you know, it is really, really tough. I mean, ebooks do have the advantage of, you know, pretty much uh, you put them up there and if they sell, you see the return Happy two months days. later. <laughs> uh, and, and, but, that, but that is, but the, the fact is that if you're dealing with the UK market, it's still, I think, very much primarily a paperback. Uh, market yes. much more in the United States where they will you know there are a lot of Kindle um, users and and ebook readers, but it is it, it, you, you can 't escape the fact if you want to work in the in the British industry, you have to produce hard copies,
4: yes you
6: do yeah i mean when you 're talking about those sort of increases, you know the fact is that big publishers probably when they 're putting stuff into supermarkets at, at, you know and they 're discounted down to under five pounds a copy. They can't be making anything on that. No, they well, must be a, almost a loss leader.
5: But it's also, if they print thousands of copies, they've got the deal already with the supermarket, yeah. so they know that those thousands of copies that they're printing, they're getting the money for from the supermarket up front. So.
6: But it sets up an expectation within readers that, you know, that uh, we can't raise the cover prices to the level that, that we need to no. to preserve any sort of margin for particularly for the authors.
4: Exactly. And we don't have the economy of scale that a big publisher um, does. You're right about supermarkets. That is a loss leader. Big big publishers do not make money. I mean, I don't know if you've had books in supermarkets, because we have, but you don't just get a, a supermarket deal with a high discount. You also have to pay a marketing charge to them, a significant marketing charge. So it's expensive. We've done it only a few times and usually been heavily burnt. <laughs> But you will never, ever, ever get on the bestseller list unless you have a supermarket deal, and that's the bottom line. And although we aren't necessarily aiming for that, we do need some books that sell well to sustain the other ones while we while we build authors and build careers and big build our list.
6: Absolutely. You're talking about an industry where risk, you know, there's nothing like it publishing. I suppose m- the music industry is the other one, isn't it? Where
5: well, anything creative isn't. Certainly it, in is the
6: it? old days, you know, where you know you have to you, you, you're judging whether people are gonna like it. There's no guarantee hits but it's very very true in in publishing
4: but I think with music though there are a lot more platforms to build a career if you see what I mean like there are lots of vehicles and Um, And live events and things like that that can actually foster things in a way that we don't have here. It's pretty much here. Throw it out there and just see what you think without any build around it and any other alternatives. I mean, you hope for press coverage and we usually get pretty decent press coverage. But apart from that and some like hopeful marketing (laughs) where it is, it's a huge risk. And there's not much you can do, is there? I mean, with ebooks, like you suggest, you can sort of change the way you're targeting things. You can change your marketing and your keywords and your metadata. But with book books, you know, that you're relying on people to pick up in a bookshop, you're relying on retailers to stock. It's different.
2: And I, I think this price point is really interesting because I'm talking as a reader. And yes, I prefer printed books. And I admit, you know, when you see the price going up, some hardbacks £25 and paperbacks £10, I do think, oh my goodness, that's too much. But then you have to think, hang on, this is perhaps a year's work of the author. It's all the work of the publisher. I'm quite happy to buy a couple of coffees or a magazine, which is nearly that amount yeah. of money. So I think also, as a reader, I I need to reset my mind in terms of pricing. And I think in previous years, we've you know, the price did go down a lot. You could get books quite cheaply. And that's that's causing the problem as well.
4: As well. And Amazon hasn't helped. I mean, they've always, well, traditionally discounted books heavily as they price match other retailers. And in the end, that tends to be big names from big publishers because they've got supermarket deals that are getting the price match. So it's 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 tricky, but you're right. I mean, we have some of the lowest book, book prices in the whole world. I'm from Canada originally, and a, a paperback there is pretty much 15 pounds, maybe more the equivalent. And it's, they've always been high, but books are valued in a way that they don't seem to be here anymore. I mean, people actually, they buy them, big book buyers, but they are a, a sort of a calculated purchase. And people understand that, as you say, it's like hours and hours of of entertainment but you can also lend it to a friend you can l- keep lending it to a friend you know the, there's mm-hmm. the potential for multiple periods of enjoyment with a book are are huge and as we head into a recession we need to do something to encourage people to believe that these are value for money as you say like the, a year or two of an author's life tons of work and thought in pu- a publishing company there's a typesetter there's a copy editor there's an editor there's a marketing guide. There was a jacket that was designed. There's a lot to pay for, not even considering the cost of printing a book. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you, I mean,
6: what people don't seem to appreciate is just how high those discounts are that the retails demand. You know, you're not going to get into bookshops uh, if you're you, – you, we do a lot of Ingram Spark print-on-demand stuff for, for some of our titles. And uh, frankly, at a £10 cover price and a 35% discount, bookshops don't even want to look at it. They just don't because it's too small a discount. Yeah. We're talking about most retailers asking 50 55 even 60% exactly. discount on the cover price. That is to say 60% of that cover 60. price goes to the retailer, leaving you, say, on a £10 book, £4 to work with. It's and that's probably, going to be
5: spread And it's
6: probably on print-on-demand, any average paperback is going to cost £4.50 yeah. just to print, so let we, alone anything else. So this is why we're under so much pressure. And,
4: and we have a sales team as well and a warehouse where they where they come out of. So Simon and Schuster sells our books in for us. So we pay a a combined sort of sales and distribution charge of twenty percent of that of the money that comes in. So you pay, you know, you've given your sixty percent discount and then twenty percent of what's left comes is taken off. The author (laughs) might like to get some money too. Um so consider their royalty on top of that. And our royalties, that um, for anyone sort of new to the industry, that's the percentage of the the book sales that an author gets. So we pay those on RRP. So that's the retail price. So if the book is $9.99, they get a percentage of that. Lots of big publishers have now moved to a net receipts model, which is, I think, unbelievably unfair. So the author is only getting a percentage of the money that they have left after they've paid for the discount and the S&D sales and distribution. Um, but if you if you take into, let's say an author is getting 10%, let's just say of a physical book price to make it easy, that's about a pound on a 9.99 book. So if we like, chip away at all the, the things that we've just been talking about, if we come away with 50p, I would be elated.
5: <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> yeah. i get all very excited.
2: <laughs> yeah. And yet the author is depending on you and you're oh, really? doing so much of the work without you that, you know, there's no book. I, I appreciate you're not writing the book, but you still are essential in that process.
6: Well, we're fostering it. We're we're creating the environment where it could be made. And we're providing the backup services, the, particularly on the editing front, which is the crucial part that makes that separates a decent manuscript to a great one. Yeah. Is the editing Mm. and it's the input of those editors and the looking at it from a reader's perspective. I think that's what we're always trying to do as, as publishers is, you know, how can we make this story and this work and the prose land best for? the reader
5: because what we want is what people to read it and then tell their mum and their sister and their friend and their neighbors
4: I've read this great book (laughs) word of mouth is the best thing I love what you're saying about the editing we always you know I was just talking to one of my authors um the other day who um he or she I won't say which um was you know reluctant (laughs) to make some of the changes and I said look this isn't your book anymore when you give it to us we're like midwives we are preparing it now for a reader and then it becomes the reader's book it's not yours anymore right you, you, and they say well it's my name on it and we say well that's our name on it too you know you have to it has to be the perfect book and it has to be ready for a reader to love to enjoy every single thing there can't be any any little niggling points there can't be anything and that takes time and energy and imagination mm. and you know if we're going to be brutally honest here, not all the big publishers are taking the time to do that anymore. You know, they,
5: they, are, cu- they are cutting it, aren't they? They're cutting, cutting
4: it. Yeah. corners. They're seeing, a, you know, a trend for a certain type of book, a certain part of the genre, and they're firing them out as quickly as they can to 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 maximise the trend while it still exists. And, and what goes is the editing. So I think in general, I, you know, you will see a big difference between... Um, independent good independent publishers and big mainstream publishers the the quality of the content and the whole package really Um, like we might not have the money to throw behind huge marketing campaigns but I firmly believe that our books are recommended for a long time in a way that some of these like fly up the bestseller list books are not
5: Mm.
6: that's right yeah we, we, we feel
5: very strongly about the editing and the cover don't we
6: Yeah, we do. We do. (laughs) I mean, you know, what's the point if we're not going to try and do the best we can by our readers and indeed our authors, because by doing that, we're doing the best for for our authors. Yes. Uh, You know, having those values, those standards. And uh, yeah, I mean, there were times, of course, when we were setting up and and launching books, uh, I think probably we would admit that one or two things went out that, that, you know, in terms of the forensic editing wasn't, Quite there yet, but you know, you get your act together. And this is the other thing about publishing, which people forget, is that it's a constant learning journey. I and mean, we're talking about how we're having to adjust to the realities of the marketplace, and always having to uh, spot ways of, of negotiating how things are changing uh, without necessarily being in a position to influence them. If you know what I mean, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the trends are the trends, um, and you have to kind of adapt. But in terms of your creative performance we're always learning and in a sense oh, totally every, every time you have been doing it for
5: 20 years but every I'm still time learning. you sign
6: an author a great author and a, a great book suddenly your bar has gone higher so from a submissions point of view <laughs> everything's got to try and get towards that now um, whereas it might have been you know start you were just grateful for people taking an interest in your publishing house at the start <laughs> And now, you know, it's up here because, you know, so-and-so has been award nominated or whatever. So, yeah. the, the, you know, the whole um, culture around your company and around the industry changes all the time. And trying to be aware of that and trying to keep on top of that is so hard.
5: Yeah. But fun, I have to say. Yeah, it's fun.
6: It's fun. It's fun.
5: Well, it couldn't be as much fun, but it is. It really is. <laughs> Let's talk about time. What is
2: taking up? a lot of your time at the moment. Karen, what would you say?
4: Uh, I should go and get my 30-page to-do list and we'll check it out. (laughs) Uh Oh my goodness, okay, well, editing, that takes a lot of time, reading submissions. Coming up with things like blurbs and strap lines and marketing ideas and preparing the copy for visuals because we do book trailers for all of our books. I have to do the Chase Press. I have to do um, sort of marketing and sale and press updates for our sales team. And it's not just here, it's also sales team in America and in Australia and in South Africa. It's, it's a constant, constant, um, you know, right now I've got a sales conference on Tuesday for our UK thing. So I've just been doing cheat sheets. That took me five hours yesterday for, so there's a sheet for every book and it's basically your dinner party pitch for this book? What are the hurdles? What are the marketing plans? And it's an extensive document that our sales team will use to sell in. So that's a big one. There's things like coding. So every time you put a book out there, you have to give it a series of different codes so that it can find its place in the market. Retailers use them and online retailers will feed them into a system so that they get grouped in the right genre or whatever. It's it's absolutely nonstop. Plus, emails. (laughs) I mean, I I, I sort of glance over at the number of unread emails in my box because I'm I'm really good at reading them and formulating a reply in my head and then never answering, (laughs) marking them as unread and never to be seen again. Um, it's there 's a lot I mean I find we spent I spent hours on social media too, and that has proved to be one of the most important things so it's if someone talks to us, we always answer you know and i and I remember you know I, I think as publishers, we forget that sort of excitement when an author or or an, or even a publisher answers someone who 's taken the time to say they enjoyed a book or ask a question. Um, and, and when we do that, you see the sort of the excitement that, that they feel. So all of our authors are really engaged with that, too. But we're, you know, we're pitching for ebook deals, we're promoting ebook digital deals, we're picking a narrator for the audio books, it's, it's a huge, huge job. And I think And Rebecca and Adrian will agree with this, that in a small company, there's not very many of us doing doing all of this. You know, we're we're working like stupid hours, 16, 18 hours a day sometimes. And and still that list is 30 pages long. Yeah.
5: But my my list is a spreadsheet and it's color coded. (laughs) But it's growing, and it's sort of coming. It's it's always coming off the spreadsheet, beyond the screen, and I I on my phone as well. I use the notes app of all the things, all the emails I haven't answered in that day to do the following day. <laughs> so everything you said, I was thinking, yep, that's me. Yep. Yeah, that
6: is that is very much Rebecca. I mean, Rebecca really the engine room of Hoback in the sense that she keeps those days. And um, for a variety of reasons, I I don't and I can't, and you know, and I come in sort of it's 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 to do with attention deficit disorder that i have so you know reading submissions is is a toughie because you know you sat there and um for me not to wander off to my phone or whatever it's really really hard so i know it's a good book if i haven't wanted. No, yeah. <laughs> <Yeah.
5: laughs> that but, is our benchmark if he finishes it then it's a really good book
6: <laughs> so we throw in the the audio element i mean i i have narrated a number of hobec titles we have our studio just just around the corner here and um you know, I spend a lot of time in there too. So there's another element that to th- to throw in the fact that we produce our own uh, quite a few of our own audio books. Ah. it's you know that's another very very big uh, time sink. But all of those things are true. All of you know what Karen is saying is it, it is a monumental list of things that. You know, not only just need to get done, but done properly and done accurately. And that's the hard bit.
5: But I think Karen makes an interesting point as well. You have to have so many hats on. Yeah. You can't just be good at creating blurb, which is a good one skill. Mm. You, you've got to be good at spreadsheets as well. You've got to be good at talking to people and presenting in front of people everything. It's like... You know, you have all these hats on, you have to have all these skills and, and everybody has things that they're good at and better at. Yeah. I and
4: mean, in a big company, there are whole departments to do what one person does um, in, in a small company. But, but as you know, as Rebecca said, it, it's fun because it's varied and it's different. Um, you know you can be doing you know if you don't like doing one but you can move on to something else because there's always something else to be done. but I think I think that the point is though right now it's more challenging than ever and you have to be more creative you have to be more exciting you have to be more noisier and better and faster and and that's really exhausting um, it is
5: exhausting yeah
4: <laughs> but I feel like it you know we are such independent publishers are such an important part of the publishing ecosystem you know, and that ecosystem includes independent bookshops and big retailers and Amazon and big publishers. We, we are the part of the business that takes big risks and brings fresh, new, exciting authors to the market. Um, you know, as we mentioned earlier, not chasing trends, but doing something, you know, positive um, in a way that big publishers won't. You know, everything has to be monetized before an acquisition is made in a big publisher. Whereas we will say, this is just phenomenal. Like it needs to be published and not look at the figures.
5: (laughs) And I only have to ask one person as well. If I I like something.
4: we have you know, my editor and I both and we have um, um, Liz who reads our submissions who has been there right from the beginning and knows exactly what I'm looking for so she does the first scan of them she's never been wrong ever but ultimately it's my decision you know if, if, if there's nobody to report to to account to um, apart from my long-suffering husband who does the money <laughs> um, and even then make him a nice dinner and everything's fine <laughs> <laughs>
2: i'm just interested if i gave you the three of you a magic wand that you could wave and change one thing mm. to make to make it better what what would that be rebecca adrian what would you i'd like a day off Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what's that <laughs> forget that no go on
0: anything else No. I, I,
6: in in in, in honestly i think something that karen was saying very early on which is uh a better understanding f- you know the 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 Reviewing platforms, I mean, we're talking about the big names in the in the Sunday papers or whatever, to take to just challenge you know to give us an opportunity because it, they're just not looking at us anymore and um, the independent side. And a corollary to that would be Harrogate, wake up, Let us have more people on your platforms, or let us have uh, a fringe, the Harrogate <laughs> fringe where the independent community can offer something different. Because, uh, you know, th- and, and I think I would encourage festivals to look at it that way, because we're a huge amount, huge part of the ecosystem, as, as Karen says. And, you know, the traditional industry is basically strangling us out of the market. And I'm afraid people who should know better are complicit in that.
4: Yes, I think I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, we have always punched slightly above our weight, given our size, in terms of review coverage and retailer support and headlining festivals. So we do get those Harrogate invites and we do get that kind of thing. But I, I you know, we work so hard pitching and convincing people. Um, you know, that's one of the things you need to do as a small publisher. You have to be. You have to be so persuasive. <laughs> You have to, um, the, the use of hyperbole. But if I were to change something, I would say exactly the same thing. There needs to be um, less emphasis on, on, on money so the big publishers buy a big book they have a marketing budget of let's say a hundred thousand pounds well we can't get a we can't compete on any level and unfortunately because a lot of the media is struggling and I know this is true because I have discussed this with books editors on a number of big papers they've said our reviewers love your books our reviewers are reading your books but the truth is that we are struggling and these big publishers will advertise. And therefore, these are effectively paid for slots in, I'm not saying every paper, but a lot of papers. And that's so disappointing because we can't compete. You know, I think think readers need to understand that the books on the bestseller list are not necessarily the best books. The books being reviewed are not necessarily the best books. These are the books that the publisher has decided and probably 18 months ago, two years ago, that are going to be their lead titles, their big hitters. And these are the ones on the bestseller list because they're paid to be there. End of story. You know, it's not an equal marketplace and it should be. And I really think that, you know, I think big publishers underestimate readers. You know, readers do not want all the same thing with a slight difference. They're, readers are varied, as varied as the books that are published. And, and you know, we've had you know, unexpected successes with really challenging books that people have totally bought into. Like, you just can't assume that everyone wants the same dumb old thing. You know, we want to do something different. And there has to be a wide acceptance of that across the market. And that includes retailers, that includes, you know, even, you know, we now have a near monopoly on the high street. You know, there is one major retailer who who has now one major physical retailer who's now pretty much scooped up all the others so that limits the number of shops apart from independents that we can we can get our books into and we're constantly getting emails saying well why isn't the book in my local whatever shop let's just say absolutely again the retailer support is is coming from we have to present the book with a marketing plan and show how much money we're planning to spend and also the the press that we expect to get. Now, if that press is paid for and that marketing is paid for, how can we compete? We can't. That doesn't mean our books are any worse. In fact, in many cases, I think they are a lot better. We used to have a buyer at said retailer who absolutely got what we were doing and showed huge support. We didn't have a single return plenty of reorders so we need the industry to show faith in what we're doing if we crash a lot of a lot of the industry will crash actually a lot of authors really good authors will not be published and that would be a travesty
6: yeah yeah i couldn't agree more couldn't agree more absolutely
4: do you think authors
2: expectations are high as well in terms of what you can deliver
4: is that another pressure i think that the, social media doesn't help because I think a lot of it, as as I constantly point out to our authors, is smoke and mirrors. Like I just sold a hundred thousand copies of my book in a week. Well, you didn't actually because you're you're it was given away free as part of a subscription thing. You know, it's, you have to, a lot of what we see is not the reality. And it must feel, and I'm sure as publishers, as all of us, like even you, Philippa, you must think someone else does it better. Someone else is doing better. I mean, it's natural human nature to think that, that you are somehow not, reaching the heights that you are due, um, or that you, you should be. Um, so I think, yes, I think authors see this kind of thing, and they they want this kind of thing. But we just need to gently remind them that we do too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We need to sell books just as much as you do. And we are doing everything in our power to do that.
5: Mm. Yeah, very similar with us. I mean, we get emails mm. saying, you oh, know, I've just seen so, so and so was <laughs> number two in the whatever chart and
6: you know why aren't i yeah i I think that that's (laughs) very true um there are people out there making it look as if you you do xyz and you're guaranteed success and they're making money because they're selling courses that tell you how to do that and you know it's easy to call them snake oil salesmen and i don't wish to be rude but that is that is the culture at the moment. And there are a lot of people coming into the industry thinking, and to some extent we did too, honestly, because I took one or two of these courses and thought, okay, well, we'll follow these models and, and, and success will follow because we'll get good authors and, and it'll work. It doesn't work like that. And I think there's a lot of people out there propagating this myth. Plus, there's also a lot of people out there now, you see it on YouTube, if you're flicking through, I sometimes get an advert from one particular woman, an English woman, who's saying, hey, I've made such and such amount of money this week, uh, and I didn't even write the books you know uh, <laughs> i mean it just make, makes my blood boil if it was that
5: easy we'd all be doing it you know like she's got, that, got yeah.
6: some ai to trot out some prose <laughs> stick a cover on it and shoved it out there
4: that's the exact thing so we have we have complete parody at the book so every author gets the same advance the exact same marketing spend and we have we obviously change our strategy according to the part of the genre it is and the author you know There's lots of sort of variables, but we do the same things for every author. Sometimes they soar and we can sell 150,000 copies of a book. Sometimes we sell less than a thousand and there's no other variable there except for human behavior and you can't predict that you can't predict Mm -hmm. what is going to appeal like maybe we got the jacket wrong but we all loved it so whose fault is that you know it's it's (laughs) exactly you know it's so impossible to, to to figure out where we might have got it wrong when it doesn't appear to go as swimmingly or as quickly as possible but i guess that when we're independent publishers are different is that we are determined and we so we okay this didn't work no we don't drop the author and move on to another book we fix it mm-hmm. you know we think uh, you know i check in the rankings thinking no that didn't work right strategy b let's try this and I get Cole who does all of our digital marketing and visuals and stuff okay what can we do right let's try for a price material let's do this that's another visual let's do a teaser for the whole series and you know it it it, it takes a creativity and uh, and a uh, a a dedication that i think the big publishers are all too willing to to give up on we are the same we have
5: conversations with our authors don't we We will say we'll we'll try this and well we'll, you know we we could always try this it might not work we can't guarantee it's going to work but we'd like to try it because it's interesting it's different
2: yeah what i love though is that the three of you are so passionate about books (laughs) and authors and store good stories and that's what it comes down to so You know, I like to think I'm passionate about good stories, but in a different way. So what what can we as readers do to help? I think we need to do so much more. So Karen, what would you say? What what can I do? What can other readers do?
4: Well, I would say sort of actively looking out for independent um, publishers because you know, sometimes we aren't seen or heard in the in, in the noise and the furore of of everything else going on in the industry. There are a lot of new digital publishers, for example, that are noisy um, and churning and churning hundreds of books out all the time. So you've got to kind of actively seek these out. Do things like um, subscribe to subscription boxes and then you'll get like in our case one or two books every month that I would actually pretty much say you are guaranteed to love because they're different um, and they're special and we've worked so hard on them. Like I am so committed to my authors like when I get their manuscripts in I'm in tears of joy you know that I can see you know they've improved their craft has just improved over years Their, their, their writing is so strong and powerful and insightful and I feel that being with an independent publisher without the constraints of fitting within a, a genre box, they have the freedom to be creative, to do different things. And wow, can you see it, right? So readers that are going out there, like follow us on social media, um, sign up for our newsletter, mm-hmm. things like that. You'll know about what we're doing. We have lots of, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if your pocketbook is, is hit by, you know, the cost of living crisis, we're all feeling it. You know, we do lots of digital deals. Every month we have lots of digital deals. We have lots of giveaways, lots of fun. Yeah. Um, you know, come to some of our events, follow our authors. There's lots of things. Um, And I think that for a reader, it's very rewarding to, to, to be, to develop a relationship with a small independent because you feel like you're part of the family Mm. then. Um, You know, you feel like when you read, you're contributing to something and that's important to us. I mean, we love, it's our Team Arenda family. You know, there, there might be thousands, but I I almost feel like we have a relationship with everybody. And isn't that nicer than picking up a book for four pounds at the supermarket and never engaging with the author never engaging with the publisher I mean sure yeah maybe it's a quick easy cheap read but but you know as a whole you know I think we have to all be more considered consumers you know if we want to keep the good stuff alive it's a little bit like shopping local Mm. isn't it it's it's if you want to see these things if you don't support they'll be gone and you will miss them
6: yeah and the other thing I would say is leave a review leave a review Yes, because yes. Uh, you know i hate to say it but the algorithms uh, if we're dealing with amazon for instance you know the number of reviews has a, an impact I, I just think you know and the other thing is I and mean, that's the electronic way of doing it but word of mouth is just as important I was gonna so say, if you have yeah. enjoyed it
5: recommend it to someone lend it yeah yeah, yeah. i don't mind people lending because, books because uh, i lend books all the time so because what
6: we're trying to do for our authors is to build their individual armies of people who love their books but also in reflection love our books too
5: and you know we were talking earlier about being busy well one of the best parts of the job i find and it's not productive at all it doesn't earn us any money it's answering emails from readers who write write to our um email us and say i've just come across you i've just come across this book and i loved it and then we'll have a conversation (laughs) and i love that i absolutely love that yeah that's
2: wonderful so yeah we as readers need to step up more and um yeah just be aware of what's going on and and the impact we need to keep keep you guys yeah. going I mean it must be very difficult at the moment
4: I think it's more difficult than it's it's been ever um, you know, and and sometimes, you know, if I wasn't like the most ridiculously optimistic, like perpetually <laughs> sickeningly optimistic person, I might have given up completely because some days you just think, you know, it's there's a head shaped hole in my wall <laughs> because everything we try isn't working. You know, it feels like a, a catastrophic sort of series of no um, sometimes. And, you know, books that we have been so sure would, would leave a mark are barely selling. And, um, you know, we're not getting the right retailer support. No reviews came in. And you think, why? Well, you know, what, what's going on? But, you know, this, Philip, honestly, things like this really help. Because, I mean, I'm not sure the average reader understands, like, the ins and outs of an industry like this. I, I think I would certainly not have. And I, I would... I would buy in the past all of my Christmas present lists from the bestseller list because I'd think, hey, those are the best books. Those are the books everyone's reading without understanding, you know, why they got there and realising that the best books are often the little gems that you have to sort of uncover yourself.
5: Also, buy everybody a book for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs)
6: <laughs> an indie one preferably <laughs> yes.
5: yes yeah
2: absolutely i mean i'm going yes. to put you all on the spot and ask you what two books that you're publishing at the moment from your publishing house that you want that you could tell us about so that we can go out and get those books i know it's a shame to only ask you for two but we're limited on time current which two Would you tell us about and why?
4: Okay, well, I'll do a translated one because half of our list is in translation. I will talk to you about Johanna Gustafson's The Bleeding, which is in glorious hardback um, with sprayed coloured edges. Um, It's our biggest ever production and the reason why we did that is because the story is unbelievably clever. It's historical fiction, historical thriller, three different timelines, three different women, three different eras and one extraordinary mystery. Um, It starts in Belle Époque, France and moves to 2000, I guess... Uh, in Quebec and it's got a little bit of black magic a little bit of a police procedural and it's the first in a series number one bestseller in France and it's the ending there is not a single person that guessed that ending yet (laughs) but it's but I think it's a Christmas gift I think what Rebecca was suggesting it's perfect because it's lush very beautiful um and then you sold it to me (laughs) well good um and then I think Philip I'm going to go with one of your favorites which is Doug Johnston so Doug Johnston in uh September the end of September we published the fourth book in the Skelfs series and it this is This is called Black Hearts, and the Skelfs are three generations of women in Edinburgh in the Skelf family running the family funeral parlor, and they are part-time PIs and these are warm they're philosophical they're tense they're definitely not cozy crime but they are full of of wonderful extra meaning and these characters are truly unforgettable the edinburgh setting is beautifully drawn and quite the first two books in the series were published in full lockdown and it just keeps selling the first one was the most borrowed book in edinburgh libraries last year And it's because it's something, and Philippa will agree with me Mm. here, something truly special. Mm.
2: Mm. Very much so. I love that series so much. I really do. Oh, me too. Me
4: too. (laughs) Go on,
5: Adrian, Rebecca, which two would you select? You go first. Okay. So I'm going to pick a book that we're not going to make any money from at all. Not a penny. It is our Christmas anthology that we're publishing on the 29th of November. It's called Cooking the Books. And it's uh, an anthology of short stories plus recipes. So, a number of our authors have contr- contributed, and some of them have written about characters from their series or their books. Some have written something completely new, but they each come with a recipe for hopefully for readers to try and cook for Christmas. <laughs> so, and um, profits from the book um, are going to be donated. So, all royalties are going to be donated to the Trussell Trust. So, the authors have done it for nothing, and we've design the covers and done the typesetting and the editing all for nothing we do this every year we do one book every year it's not a big book it's only 200 pages long but that's what we want to see in your christmas stockings
6: <laughs> brilliant yeah it's difficult to, to choose uh, choose uh, two. i mean it is a great book uh we, we wrote bits yeah of we've it.
5: contributed <laughs> as well that's the only time we write properly <laughs> <laughs> every year
6: uh I, I have to say it's difficult because you, you're choosing between your children aren't you um so I'm going to pick the our uh, next release, which comes out very shortly. In fact, by Maureen Myant, "The Tuesday. Confession," mm-hmm. uh, set in Glasgow, and um, it's one of those where I just loved every moment of it. And and she's an experienced author, but this is just it's just one of those great, um, great novels where you think the characters, you, you, like you say, I mean, the place sense of Glasgow is very very strong in it, but. The characters are, are, are tremendous. But we've got so many people that I'm proud of, but I'm going to pick that one uh, as it's our, our most recent release.
5: It starts off with the confession. That is the confession to murders, and that's the beginning of the book. And then the rest comes from that, doesn't it? So yeah, yeah. It's a bit different in that way. Brilliant. Oh, Those sound all like
2: great books. My last question really is, you know, you've been very honest and I really appreciate that because I think that's, that's what we need. We need a, a bit of a reality check on the situation. But... You must all love the job to keep going, to keep doing it. And so I'd just like to end with asking you all what what you love most about it and and what the most memorable thing that you are doing, what
4: really sticks in, in your mind? Karen, what would you say? It's it's difficult, isn't it? I, I mean, because we, you know, to, to, to suffer through all of this, we have to love what we're doing. And I do love it. I mean, I genuinely love my authors. I mean, almost like family. And and what Rebecca and Adrian were saying earlier about, you know, the weight of responsibility. You know, I've, like I'm desperate if we don't sell books because I know they need to earn a living as well. And, you know, so I, I love that sense of family that we've created. I love... I love seeing that their craft develop. I love seeing every book better than the last. I I love marketing the books. I love talking about them and pitching them. You know, there's so much good stuff. You know, and it's it's really nice to be able to explain to people why these books should be read. You know, not just not just um, not just reliant on reviews and everything else. And, and it's there's a there's an element of this that is really special because we're choosing the books, but we're also the ones kind of selling them to everyone else too. And and I love that. I I all of that I love. I love doing things like this, you know, because this is such a great opportunity to, to talk about, you know, and an, an industry that should be better, but that we obviously still love. And I guess for me, I mean, very early on, it was the thing with with um with our author knocking um the girl on the train off the top of the Kindle chart. That was kind of momentous. The most amazing thing was one of my authors, Doug Johnston, in fact, um he he dedicated his book to me. And then before I'd even seen that, he wrote me this long email about how my faith in him had changed the way he wrote and and his belief in himself and and honestly, I mean, I I was so overwhelmed and so humbled because we're we're just you know midwives, right? That the, the all the creativity, all the wonder comes from them. We just we're vessels to you know to to get it out into the world and and to have that I don't know that kind of. Also mutual belief was was really profound.
2: Well, that's wonderful. That's just amazing.
5: Adrian Rebecca, what would you say? Um, very similar. Um, I, I do love the job. You know, there are days where we're both sort of a bit down in the dumps, but I'm an optimist as well. And I just I just think it is it's it is gonna work, it is gonna get better. I love this job. I can't imagine doing anything else. I think that's what it is. Is if I imagine not doing it. Then I actually feel grief very quickly. <laughs> so, yeah, and I love those moments when you, when when you, when you send the author the box of books, and they send you an email to just say, "Thank you." And that's all they have to say, just, "Oh, thank you. I love it. I love my book. It's on my shelf. I can't wait to show you know my family and friends and see it. And it just makes me think, you know, I helped them do that." That wasn't just, you know. that that you it's a bit like a parental thing isn't it you talk about the the family feeling you do one of our authors actually calls us her book parents doesn't she yeah Yeah. Yeah, she
6: does she does i I think it is that you know it takes a certain amount of self-belief to write a book to see it through and then to submit it uh but then to enforce that if we can in any way uh and to bring as you as you were talking about the craft improving seeing that improve Mm. um through combination of of their efforts and our stewardship that's that's terrific so um and and the other thing is you know it is a thrill every time the delivery driver from dpd arrives (laughs) with a box of books and it's the first time we've seen them the physical form that is exciting yeah. it's terrifying it's but terrifying it's exciting.
5: and exciting when you get the, the the scissors and you're opening the box and you're thinking oh god well, let's, hope, like
6: let's, let's hope the margins worked and you know all <laughs> the things you know they haven't cropped the cover badly or whatever it might be but no I mean, and also
5: like Karen was saying podcasts and things like that we do our weekly podcast the last time I was in front of a microphone it was actually a hairbrush when I was a teenager before <laughs> we started our podcast so you know a good 20 years and not doing anything like that and now it's a highlight of my
4: week <laughs> Yeah, it is. There's a real pleasure and a real pride in bringing something new and different to the to the market, too, isn't there? You know, a book that's going to provoke debate and thought and people are going to, you know, chat about and and examine and, and that's that's. I, I find it like an honor to do that kind of thing, really. I mean, I, I'm perfectly happy to read like a like a junk food comfort read, you know, whiz through it. But will I remember what it is? I think there's a place in the market for all kinds of books, including the ones that we publish, which are the ones that you will remember and think about and maybe change, maybe even create change. Mm. You know, in our, and we publish... Uh, half of our list in translation. We publish authors from 14 countries. So there is a a cultural diversity that I think right now is extremely important when there's like xenophobia is becoming well it's increasing again yes. um you know I, I think that reminding people that there is a world out there and people just like us with different different cult, different cultures exciting bits to their culture different words different voices you know i love that different storytelling that's that's an honor to be to be able to do that kind of thing mm.
6: yeah i think i think mm. it's never been more important actually i think as yes, you you talk about the 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 fact is that uh the world is breaking up in ways that we haven't anticipated or seen for for decades. And we can't ignore the fact that some of the problems that we're talking about um, in terms of, of, uh, you know, keeping a business going are down to these factors. I mean, you know, it's just... It it, it is a very different economy. And and books, uh, you know... We're not quite canaries in the coal mine, but we are, um, for many people, we're a luxury uh, in these environments. And so, therefore... You and also
4: know. hopefully a comfort. And a yeah, difference. absolutely. Totally absolutely. Confident.
6: You know, for, for, for dedicated readers, I mean, we're, we're an essential. We've but... got
5: 4,000 books, so we get a lot of comfort. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring you a better
4: world.
6: Yeah, exactly. Let's hope so.
5: Oh,
2: well, definitely. I mean, it's just been fascinating to talk to you all about this. And I'm just so grateful for your time. I think it's really thought provoking. It certainly made me think about what I do with the books that I read and review. So thank you for that. And yeah, I think we're all just going to go away and and sign up to your mailing list and um, read more of your books and just support independent publishers more. We've, we've got to for the unique and brilliant concept you bring. So Karen Sullivan from Arenda Books, Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins from Hobet Books. Thank you all so much. Oh,
4: thank pleasure. you. Thank you. It's been good. Thank you for having us.
2: Well, first of all, I apologize for the long interview, but I just just found I found that really fascinating and I hope you have done too. It's really made me feel quite accountable for the lack of diversity in publishers of books that I include. I have supported Hobeck and Arendra in the past, but I think I need to do more of this. So listen, I'm holding myself accountable to this. I will be reading before next week's episode The Bleeding from Arenda Books and The Confession by hobet Books, and I will review those for you next week. And yeah, just expect more of uh, of these different books. I just feel like, I yeah, I need to be just need to be a bit more aware and yeah, it's made me, it's made me realise. Anyway, uh, thank you for bearing with me on this very long episode. I hope you found it as useful as I have. Uh, That sounds like I found it useful listening to myself. I don't mean that. It was just the discussion with the indie publishers. Gosh, can't wait for next week. So yes, I'll be reviewing The Bleeding and the Confession, but also there's a great author interview, great other books to review. And, yes, yeah, just very excited about it. So just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick
1: Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon.
0: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.